0: Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as a part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state later in the show we'll talk to richmond-based journalist peter galaska about virginia politics but right now we're joined here in the studio by giles morris he's the executive director at charlottesville tomorrow emily hayes a news reporter at charlottesville tomorrow and billy jean louis an education reporter at charlottesville tomorrow welcome billy this is your first time in the studio so let's start with you so you wrote a story on the first supervisor of equity and inclusion for charlottesville schools can you tell us a little bit about who this is um, and what she's going to do for the Charlottesville school system?
1: Of course. Uh, you know, thanks for having me. So the story I wrote was about Denise Johnson, who is currently executive director for City of Promise, uh, and then she'll be the first supervisor of equity and inclusion supervisor for Charlottesville City Schools. In uh, that position, she'll she'll be beginning on May 15th. Some of her duties will include examining policies and systems, engaging staff to build a welcoming and inclusive culture, uh, as well as monitoring student achievement, developing academic plans, and providing counseling about education equity issues. And of course, she's not new uh, to the area. She, I mean, before joining City of Promise, she worked for 12 years as a school counselor for Hermitage High School, Additionally, she graduated from uh, Virginia State University in 2002 with a Bachelor of Science in Health. She also has a Master's uh, in Education Counseling for Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, In talking to her, she told me one of the reasons she accepted the job is because that her, her goal is to reach as many children as she can by facilitating change, like making sure all children, regardless of their background, receive the resources that they need to maximize their full potential.
0: So maybe Giles, you can help me out a little bit here, but how does this kind of relate to a story we'll be talking about a little later in the show, dealing with civil rights leaders from Greensboro um, coming in and talking about healing after the white supremacist violence here? And how does this have to do with the fallout from the pro publica piece. Um, yeah, can you fill us in? Yeah,
2: sure. I mean, I think, you know, things kind of went two ways after August 2017. One was a national conversation about white supremacy and its roots uh, here locally and how we confronted with that, how we confronted those ideologies, but also um, have tried to deal with um, the fallout from that locally. The other part was really, um, about understanding that these are are not new issues in the black community in Charlottesville and that we have an ongoing conversation about equity in the city that we kind of lost track of, I think, in a lot of ways, and um, that the black community said, look, we have a national conversation, an international conversation about race and equity happening in our city. We're still not doing the basic things to take care of our community here and haven't been. So this isn't new to us the idea that Charlottesville is um, uh, racist in its practices on a day-to-day basis. Now, one of the front lines of that was the school systems. And the New York Times ProPublica piece that came out last summer drew very um, sort of close grained attention to the achievement gap in Charlottesville between African-American students and white students, and also connected that to a national data set in university towns of our size, showing that the achievement gaps in those communities are among the worst in the nation. Um, and so the city schools really had to figure out how to contend with that and what their response would be. And I think we were all watching uh, to see what the school system was going to do in response, especially in the wake of recent student-led protests continuing to put the heat on the system. And uh, I see Denise's higher in that context. She grew up in 10th of page. She's been running City of Promise, which is a neighborhood-based community organization uh, designed to initially to create a sort of uh, kindergarten to college pathway for students in Tenth and Page. And now she's kind of bringing that experience and that game into the big field of the entire city school system and how they're going to try and narrow those gaps, create more opportunities for their African-American students, and be more imaginative, I think, about how you uh, create... Uh, new pathways for um, students in the city schools.
0: So, Emily, you wrote a little bit about a conversation that civil rights leaders in Greensboro recently had with members of Charlottesville about kind of August 2017 in the aftermath, and even what led up to that. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so the two civil rights leaders were Reverend Nelson Johnson and and Joyce Johnson. They were involved in this major event that happened in November 1979 in Greensboro, where um, they had helped organize this march that was against uh, the Ku Klux Klan and was um, sort of related to some um, textile mill organizing. And the Ku Klux Klan and uh, the American Nazi Party showed up and um, shot and killed five people. Other people were injured. There were some clashes between the two groups. Um, but the memory of this has been dramatically different between different communities in Greensboro, to the extent that KKK members were found not guilty in a trial by an all-white jury. Yeah, been very divergent memories. So Reverend Nelson Johnson and Joyce Johnson led this Truth and Reconciliation Commission based on the South African Commission after apartheid to to do public hearings of, all, of people involved from all these different perspectives, including the public housing um, site where this took took place, people who had lived there. So they were just describing this process, and and people in the audience clearly were connecting really with what had happened in 1979 and what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, um, and were asking for advice about you know how how do you forgive people or how do you when you feel like you know, activists have betrayed you and all, all these sorts of questions. It was interesting to me, I was going there because this was an event sponsored by Almarle County, um, their new Office of Equity and Inclusion led by Siri Russell, um, as well as um, a university group and the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Um, and as sort of part of this unpacking of the events that happened in August 2017, that have been, you know, I think the Jefferson School has been really instrumental in continuing those events.
2: Yeah, and it just seems like we're continuing to try to process that as a community and on these two levels. You know, one is at the sort of fundamental, moral, philosophical, spiritual level, and that's slow work and involves all of us being in these self-examination modes as bodies, as individuals, as neighborhoods, as communities. And then the other part is just getting on with business in uh, in in things like policing and schools and uh, housing discussions and making fast progress and trying to move forward with concrete answers in the meantime. And uh, these are kind of parallel conversations and they're related to each other, but you can't sort of wait for one to resolve to have the others, Uh, and yet it's pretty confusing having all these things going on all at once um, and trying to get clarity from UVA and from the county and from the city, what are we doing? You know, who's making those calls? How do we get past this as a community? And, you know, I think increasingly we all kind of feel like you you don't get past it. You know, you just, it's a new, it's what, what Charlottesville is now and probably other cities around the country are dealing with some of the same things
0: yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Charlottesville moves forward, and do you think it's just going to be, I don't know, linear progress? Are we just going to keep going or I don't I'm scared people are going to forget about some of these events in 20, 30 years, you know?
3: it was is interesting. One of my parents is from the South and went to a university in North Carolina, and he didn't remember this event. He didn't remember this Greensboro shooting, so.
2: And as a national news story, you know those things are just blips. But in the places where they happen, um, they leave really deep marks, and um, a lot of times are, you know, related to the historical context of what happened before them and people's ongoing perceptions about how it plays on in their regular lives. Right? Like, you know, if the schools aren't fair, and the criminal justice system's not fair, then when a hate group comes to town and does something demonstrative, you know, it's it's related. Um, but for the people who aren't in those situations, they see it as a non sequitur, an interrupter, something that came from the outside and they want to move on. Let's get back to normal. And um, that's you know, that's that's definitely a tension in Charlottesville right now. But you see for sure the public bodies trying to deal with new types of solutions to be better for the African American community, uh, communities here. Um, and but how do you measure you know, you know the success and, and, and impact of that stuff. I mean, it's 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 a long distance game. Um, I think the, for the school system to go outside and hire an upper administrator like Denise with her background, it's definitely not a typical move of Charlottesville City Schools in my um, in in my experience of them. So to me, that's a it's a new. Idea, and we'll see how much power she gets, how much money she gets, what the programming stuff is. I don't know, Billy. If she talked to you about any of that stuff, or if we just have to wait and read more news stories from you.
1: Of course, you know, like our people can, you know, always, you know, watch my coverage to see, you know, what's in the future. Uh, it's it's an exciting position to see what she's going to be doing, and in talking to her, I got to know who she is, and one of the things that she told me is. She. It's not about her goals. It's not about her personal goals. It's also about what the community needs. So she vows to just like listen to what com- the community needs and just to act upon that.
0: Yeah, it'll be exciting to see what she does and what um, the Charlottesville schools continue to do after. August 2017. Well, thank you guys for coming on once again. That was Giles Morris. He's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Emily Hayes, a news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And Billy Jean-Louis, an education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at seavilletomorrow.org. Thanks for coming on, guys. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM network, T E E J dot FM. WTJU and Teej FM are both the service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia.
4: Well, as we turn now to state news, we talk with our regular correspondent on Virginia politics and news, Peter Galaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area. Peter, how are you? Good good. Um, so I want to talk about refugees in Virginia a little bit. There, the, the International Refugee Committee in Charlottesville is one of several agencies around the state that receives and helps refugees resettle here in the Commonwealth. Um, they're having a, a little bit of a harder time and kind of finding their footing with Trump's more draconian uh, policies around refugee acceptance. Take me through what's going
5: on.
6: Yeah, actually the IRC in Charlottesville, uh, according to the Virginia Mercury's News Service, is um, is going to be cutting staff through attrition no no direct cutbacks and another one another group in Richmond called the Church Worldwide Services which handles refugees is going to be closing its Richmond location uh in a couple months and keep it one it's in one in Charl- in Harrisonburg but um what ha- what's happening is that the um uh you know you can't escape the news on TV or elsewhere about Trump's continuing uh problem uh, you know uh, attempts to really reduce refugees, political refugees seeking asylum. And that's really had an effect in Virginia, um, because the numbers in the United States and in Virginia have gone down. Uh, apparently from 2013 to 2017, um, the number of refugees in the state um, had gone up to 4,200. But as of fiscal year 200-2018, it, it dropped to like 1,749. Uh, so that's a significant drop. And most of them actually come from Afghanistan, Congo, and El Salvador—not exactly Mexico or Honduras, as the Trump people would have you believe. And there's no question that the, the ruckus over the uh, so-called crisis in the border with Mexico, and the you know caravans of refugees coming from Central America, and Trump's grandstanding, in my opinion, to to, to, to you know make political hay out of this, uh, has really contributed.
4: So, what's the what's the future of of uh, immigrant and refugee services in Virginia going to look like?
6: I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Um, it depends. I mean, um, obviously, previous administrations have been more generous and open towards uh, refugees. Uh, another another issue, I believe, from reading uh, that, you know, um, domestic abuse uh, is no longer really considered by American authorities to be a viable uh, refugee, um, you know, cause or you know excuse or whatever and it just depends on how long trump stays in office i think that's the only question because um you know as i say he's really made nationalism and um you know sort of xenophobic fears of refugees and and illegal undocumented workers and immigrants a major major campaign issue and he's just sending message after message after message you're not welcome here Meanwhile, I think Virginia is among the top states in the country with a backlog in immigration courts of people trying to get some kind of decision on their status. So, um, you know, it's, it's really a mess.
4: Well, I want to turn to a different story here in Virginia that has a strong Charlottesville connection, and that's looking at healthcare with Optima, the healthcare insurance provider that last year became the only provider offering Affordable Care Act plans, those individual plans uh, through the ACA or Obamacare. Um, they were pretty much charging huge premium rates; people seeing huge jumps in their in their monthly premiums. And this year, they are posting. Very, very large profits. Take me through what's going on here. Well,
6: there's a group in Charlottesville called the Reasonable Health Insurance Company, according to the Daily Progress, that um, that analyzes a lot of the impacts of health insurance and the uh, Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. And uh, apparently, they're they're saying that oh, Optima Health, which is the only ACA-related uh, insurer available um, in Charlottesville and three three other counties in Central Virginia. Um They then uh, have the highest rate in the countries of out of pocket insurance rates, and their 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 premiums have increased steadily and Meanwhile, according to um, the uh, reasonable health insurance they they had gross profits recently of three hundred and thirty two million dollars, even though the company says it was only one hundred and fifty two million dollars but um, they 're making you know really making or cashing in on the ACA in that area, and they have a you know' a monopoly, essentially, if you want to do ACA you 've got to go through them because the other carriers don't want to get involved
4: so, I mean this points to a whole bunch of questions. One is you know how how are health insurance companies you know posting hundreds of million dollars of profit on on the backs of, of regular ratepayers let's start with that one.
6: Well, I think the problem is this it's basically you know as much as you you know, if you, you may be in favor of Obamacare, but the fact of the matter is it was a compromise. It is a flawed plan and is open to all kinds of um of instances where the insurance companies can actually pick away at it. And one of the and also there's a lot of political uncertainty. As you know Trump has uh President Trump had tried to kill off uh A C A and failed. And um and so there's he's planning yet another challenge on it according to the, the news this week. And a lot of the carriers like Anthem and other ones um, have kind of bowed out of some markets in Virginia um, because they're, they're just worried about the uncertainty of, of ACA. If they put a lot of resources into offering ACA-related pro, uh, you know, pro, programs, then they could have their investments wiped out if there's a, a governmental change in how ACA works, or even if it even exists so that's that's I think the fundamental question is that whether the ACA it needs to be fixed. Yeah,
4: yeah. Well, how how would we fix it for markets like Charlottesville? Where well,
6: that's a good question. I'm not sure entirely. One thing you wanted to do is that to the thing that I, I get so frustrated about personally is you've got a lot of people saying, "Well, oh, we got it, the free market to let save rates in the in the insurance um, sector," and yet at the same time. Um, uh, health companies, large ones, are you know pretty much able to determine or set up monopolies. And if you have a monopoly, there's no free market. I <laughs> mean, sorry, uh, this goes back to the days of the trustbusters back in the 1890s. But um, that's it. And also, there are all kinds of proposal for a Medicare X program, um, which would you know provide everyone with a government option. Then you've got the sort of the Bernie Sanders style Medicare for All. Um, and going towards a complete single payer system, which is would be it may be the best thing to do because I mean most advanced countries in the world have something like that, but it would be extremely disruptive to the whole you know health medical insurance sector
4: some people would argue that's uh, uh in its favor
6: <laughs> yeah
4: um. Uh, let's switch gears and, and go to our last story for the day. I want to talk about uh, uh, Ralph Northam. Uh, sorry, I want to talk about Governor Ralph Northam, who is about to make a decision on the carbon dioxide swap and trade uh, regional program. We're turning it over to Environmental. Yeah, but
6: by the time we're taping now, but by the time um, the show is on on air, um, you know, Northam should have made a decision about it. The issue is called something called the regional um, greenhouse gas. Uh, initiative, which is a, uh, a pact, a sort of a cap and trade for carbon dioxide pact that involves uh, nine mostly mid-Atlantic and northeastern states, where they're, they're going to have, they say that you're going to have a cap to carbon dioxide, it's mandatory, and we're going to have uh, an auction where we, we divvy up units of carbon dioxide and the power companies. This affects uh, electricity plants making generating more than 25 megawatts. Uh, and so they would have a, an allowance, and they'd have to buy and trade allowances. I mean, you know, if, say, Dominion or somebody has more than necessary, they can go to the market and sell off their allotments. And it really worked. The system really worked for to combat acid rain back in 1990 because uh, they set up a cap-and-trade system for nitrous and um, sulfur dioxide. It caused na- acid rain in, in, fact, in, you know mountains around Charlottesville, for example. But um, so we're going to see what happens. Now, what's happened now is that the Republicans in the General Assembly have kind of written they don't like the idea. A lot of them don't. And they don't want Virginia to join this, this uh, mandatory pact. Um, so what they've done is that they've rigged it so that the, um, in a budget bill that, that uh, Northam needs to sign or veto, that um, there will be no funds, uh, state funds allowed to be used in the auctions, that would eventually kill the program. So what we're waiting for Northam to do right now is to either uh, veto or not. If he vetoes, the Air Pollution Control Board is back going to this cap-and-trade plan. Um, if he vetoes, the state may proceed, but if it doesn't, if he doesn't veto, uh, then we'll have to go back again to the General Assembly, which has killed the idea several times in a row. This initiative has been around for about 10 years.
4: All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Great. Right. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area.
0: You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM network. T-E-E-J F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the law. Southern Environmental Law Center. And now a piece from the Southern Environmental Law Center's new podcast series called Broken Ground on the Kingston, Tennessee coal ash spill of 2008.
7: I woke up to the the awfulest noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. Millions of
6: tons of ash and sludge came pouring out. The spill was a hundred times larger than
4: the Exxon Valdez.
6: The prevailing myth is that it's... Safe. Arsenic levels
7: more than 100 times the acceptable amount
5: in Kingston, Tennessee. Efforts to clean up a giant spill of coal ash are going day and night. There is nothing
4: to
7: warn these workers. There's not
4: signs. There's not pamphlets. There's nothing. The
7: eyes was burning. The headaches. The coughing up of that jelly junk.
4: And now they're sick and dying, and no one will take responsibility for it.
5: This is Broken Ground, a podcast about environmental stories in the South and the people unearthing them. I'm Claudina Bade-McElwain, and before I jumped headfirst into environmental issues, I was a producer and editor for more than a decade at NPR. I worked on really tight deadlines, but the kind of information I dig into now can take months and sometimes years to unravel. In this episode, we go digging for the story of coal ash. That's the toxic substance left over when coal is burned to make electricity. In America, we make about 130 million tons of it a year. It's enough to fill a million train cars. If you've never thought about coal ash or where it ends up, you're not alone. I never had. And I don't think that the Copeland family ever thought about it either. And they lived right across the water from a coal-fired power plant in Kingston, Tennessee. That plant was run by the Tennessee Valley Authority. They're better known as TVA. And it was making tons of coal ash, every day.
7: You think that they know what they're doing and that uh, everything's safe, that they're keeping an eye on it.
5: That's Chris Copeland in a 2008 interview. He grew up fishing, swimming, playing on the Swan Pond, right there next to the coal-fired power plant. He planned on living there the rest of his life, raising his two daughters there, growing old there. And then everything changed three days before Christmas in 2008.
7: I woke up to the, the awful noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. I could hear crashing and popping, the uh, noise, the wind was incredible. Uh, it seemed like it generated its own wind.
5: I mean, imagine that. It's the middle of the night, the power's out. So Chris Copeland throws on his clothes and he scrambles outside.
7: Didn't have any lights back there, so I got in the car and drove in the backyard and shined the headlights in the backyard. And it was just unbelievable, I mean, Clumps of earth as big as our house were in the in the cove behind us.
5: Those clumps of earth that he's describing are actually huge mounds of coal ash. They'd come to be known as bergs. But he calls nine one one and says there's a mudslide.
7: From County nine one one. Yes, uh, I'm over a swamp pond, and there's a, a heck of a mudslide or something that came through our backyard. I mean, there is unbelievable. The we live on the cove back here, and it is full of mud.
5: Other neighbors start calling. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. Finally, emergency responders head to the scene. She's saying the dikes have fallen. What she means is that a six-story dirt wall that's meant to keep the coal ash sludge on the power plant property and out of the river has given way. I want to stop here for a minute and ask an obvious question that I asked when I first learned about coal ash ponds. Why would utility companies tempt fate by putting coal ash on the edge of a river? It seems like a pretty dangerous thing to do. But when I learned more about power plants, I understood why. Power plants are built near water because they need lots of it to operate. River water is often key to keeping a power plant cool. Coal ash, a byproduct of burning coal, accumulates quickly. And shipping it to a landfill costs more than keeping it on-site. So most power plant operators choose to leave it where it is, and instead store the coal ash in open-air, water-filled dirt pits. It's called wet storage. And to this day, hundreds of power plants across the country do this. And that was the same method used at the Kingston Fossil Plant. Though the ash pond at Kingston had passed a TVA inspection seven months earlier, the 60-foot dirt wall gave way overnight. It released nearly 50 years' worth of coal ash into the Emory and Clinch rivers. The next day, everyone would see just how epic of a disaster it was, and the news coverage would demonstrate that.
6: Millions of tons of ash and sludge came pouring out when a dike at a coal plant gave way this week. An unnatural
2: disaster along the Clinch River, a spill of sludge. Releasing a tidal wave of coal sludge into the area.
6: The ash coats a half mile square, sometimes as deep as 10 or 12 feet. The spill was 100 times larger than the Exxon Valdez and
5: it was all coal ash. Relatively speaking, the homeowners were lucky. A dozen homes were swamped by ash, and three were destroyed, but no one was injured or killed. They were lucky that it was the middle of the night in winter. Had it been summer, a nice day when people might have been playing in the pond, things could have gone so differently. As this disaster unfolds, people across the country, like the people in Kingston, are learning what coal ash is. They're learning that EPA didn't regulate this hazardous waste. Even though, as far back as 1980, Congress was asking the agency if it should. NPR reporter Elizabeth Shogren interviewed Matt Hale, the head of the EPA's Solid Waste Office, about this lack of oversight. So basically, EPA has been studying this problem for 28 years, is that right? That's right, yeah. Why has it taken so long?
7: There's been a considerable amount of technical work, simply, the processes require this amount of time.
0: Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwenna Laszlo and Jay Pan, and this is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at Teej That's T-E-E-J.fm. Remember to stay cool and hydrate as things start to heat up in Charlottesville. Have a good week.